Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Now the story today starts long, long ago, long before we left off last week, when the young Fian McCool left the service of the King of Kerry to seek out his uncle, Crimmel. Long before his mother, Myrna, made the agonising decision to give up her newborn child into the care of the warriors who would protect him. Long even before Fian's father used his position as leader of the Fianna to force the sons of Morna into exile. Back in the days before the gods were forced underground. Then two goddesses, Aoife and Ukra, fell in love with the same god, Ilbrick. Jealousy flared in Ukra, so she lured Aoife to go swimming with her, and there turned her rival into a white crane, cursing her to spend 200 years in that form, never able to set foot on the land, forever in flight or swimming upon the sea. You might be expecting a happy ending, but there was no heroic resolution. For after 200 years, Aoife did not regain her original form or her love, rather she dropped dead to the waves, still in her crane form. Mananan, god of the sea, found the dead crane. Of the skin of the creature that had once been Aoife, Mananan crafted a beautiful bag, and into that bag he placed many treasures of great provenance, his own shirt and knife, a smith's hook from the fierce man, the bones of Assel's swine, the king of Lochlane's helmet and a girdle of the great whale's back. And when the tide flowed in, the treasures could be found within the bag, but when it ebbed, they were nowhere. The crane bag and its treasures passed from gods to men, each time exchanged by the murder of its previous owner, until eventually it found its way into the hands of Cool and Cool had the ancient bag with him at his final battle, and when he died, it was snatched by the Grey One of Luchar, who had struck the first blow, and with him, it remained. And we rejoin Fian McCool. I'm not going to give a full recap, but let's quickly look at where we left our hero. Fian was drawing attention to himself by being absolutely awesome at everything he turned his hand to, hurling, hunting, chess, everything except keeping a low profile and not attracting the attention of his many, many enemies, which was the one thing he was really meant to be doing. At this, Fian was absolutely awful. Having blown his cover yet again, we now find him kind of floundering, to be honest. There's a vague plan. Find his uncle, who is out hiding in the wilderness, and to whom he has some kind of direction. And after that, who knows? Fian's attitude was very much a kind of let's cross that bridge when we come to it. Many days after leaving the King of Kerry, Fian was just strolling down a road, minding his own business, but probably being really awesome and conspicuous about it, when he heard the screams and wails of a terrified, distressed woman. It wasn't something he could ignore, and so he set off at a run. Soon he found a woman in an awful state. She was weeping so hard that her tears were blood, 
and then blood poured out of her mouth also. Fionn was astonished. You are red-mouthed, he exclaimed. And good cause have I, for I have lost my only son, murdered by a terrible warrior who came this way just now. And her weeping began again. Clearly this woman was in need of help, of vengeance. And vengeance was exactly the kind of thing that Fionn had been raised to do. If he couldn't be for himself, then he could do it for this woman. What was your son's name? he asked. Glonda. He was Glonda. Right. Then I shall avenge him. And so saying, Fionn set off in hot pursuit of the mysterious warrior, without actually stopping to ask what had happened between Glonda and this character to cause the fight. But we'll assume it was some straight-up banditry or the like, as it makes this all a bit less of a moral grey area. It didn't take long for Fionn to catch up with the murderer. I'm guessing this old veteran and seasoned brigand was not expecting to be challenged. And hey, even if he was, he'd done this thing many, many times before. The friends that old women had were hardly something he had to worry about. And upon seeing Fionn, his opinions didn't change very much. Another boy to kill. He had killed many great warriors in his time. He laughed when the young man challenged him to a fight. He didn't laugh when Fionn's spear was buried in his stomach a few minutes later. The grey one, for that was how the warrior was known, hadn't counted on Fionn's ability to be absolutely amazing at everything he turned his hand to. Though this was his first real fight, he found that slaughtering men was just as easy as slaughtering animals. For Glonda, said Fionn, as his surprised opponent slumped down in front of him, the light disappearing from his eyes. Presumably having been brought up on a diet of fantasy RPGs that had not previously been mentioned, Fionn knew what to do next. He looted the corpse. And in this, his first looting, he got the loot jackpot. But like all the best looted items, he had no idea what it was yet. It was just a bag, made of some kind of difficult to identify but leather-like material. He shrugged, considered the side quest was complete, added the bag to his inventory, and resumed the main quest. His journey took him far away from the lands of men, until he was deeper into the lonely wilds of Ireland than even the forest where he himself was raised. And be it by sheer dumb luck, or his extensive knowledge of tracking, he eventually found his way to the place where a small group of people were eking out an existence, so far from the lands of all the kings of Ireland. The small party of people he came across were surprised when Fionn snuck up on their camp, it had been years since anyone had reason to come this far, and they'd always got forewarning of any lost travellers in the area and made themselves scarce, such was their skills in scouting and hiding themselves within the forests. But Fionn had managed to approach unnoticed, until he strode out into the very middle of the small clearing they called home and announced his presence. The old warriors turned hunters drew their weapons, prepared themselves for battle. No one could know they were here. Their fears seemed confirmed when Fionn said, I am looking for Crimmel, brother of Cool, he who fought at the Battle of Nock where Cool was slain. At these words, the frailest of the men came forward. With the demise of his brother and his own flight well over a decade ago, the weight of his troubles had aged Crimmel rapidly. He had always known they would be found eventually, and he gathered together the last of his resolve for one more battle. 
Steadily, he answered. I am Crimmel, brother of Cool, who fought aside my brother and saw him slain at the Battle of Nock. Who asks? I am Demne, who they call Fion, son of Myrna and of Cool. And with that, Crimmel was overcome with a great joy, as were his other men. Uncle and nephew embraced, and there was much rejoicing at this long overdue reunion. That evening there was a great celebration in the forest, and Fion and Crimmel talked long into the night, sharing their many stories. The people with Crimmel were fellow clansmen and former members of the Fiana, who had refused to accept Gol's takeover. Crimmel had no idea of Fion's survival, Clan Morna having hidden the secret. He told Fionn that while only a small number of men had fled here, there were many others within the Fiana who had never truly accepted the leadership of Clan Morna, and would more than gladly serve a leader from their own clan. The old man's delight did not stop there though, for when Fionn set aside his belongings, Crimmel's eyes fell upon the bag Fionn had taken earlier that day. The crane bag! And he told Fionn the legend and history of the magical bag, in a similar manner as to how I related it to you at the start of this episode, though Crimmel was really one for the dramatic retelling. He opened it up and showed the astonished Fionn that the bag was now full of all the treasures of the gods and kings. It had occurred to me that that might be a plot item which might become unlocked by a later encounter, thought Fionn to himself, possibly. And then he related to Crimmel the story of how he had acquired the bag. The man listened open-mouthed. My boy, there is more to this than you know, for this was your father's bag, and it came into the possession of the Grey One after it was given to him by Gol McMorna as a reward. A reward for striking the first blow against your father at the Battle of Nock. In revenging that young man and his mother, you also avenged your father and my brother. Well, that's... Incredibly convenient, said Fionn. It's destiny. You've struck a first mighty blow in the war against your father's killers and in your quest to reclaim your birthright. Yep, that's right. Of all the brigands in all of Ireland, Fionn had just happened to kill the one whom he had a very personal grudge against. It was probably something to do with him being really good at everything. But what to do now? The warriors of the Fianna with Crimmel were too old and too few in number to be an avenging army that Fionn could challenge Gol with. While Fionn was very pleased to have met his uncle, acquired the crane bag and killed the grey one, he still did not seem very much advanced towards his actual goal. Crimmel had a suggestion that may seem surprising to us. The time had come for Fionn to learn poetry. It definitely should be emphasised that the status of poetry in English-speaking countries today, and poetry in ancient Ireland, are so wildly unlike as to be pretty much incomparable. Consider that there weren't the huge varieties of media we have today. Even literacy and books were pretty much non-existent, and musicians few. Poets were incredibly well-respected for their ability to memorise and relate stories, their command of language and ability to craft verses that inspired emotion or compelled action. Translated into modern language, Criminal was not advising Fionn to study funny limericks, read romantic verse, or perform at small local poetry slams for a specialist audience. No, this was like becoming a top rock musician or film star combined with the oratory skills of the best of politicians. 
These attributes will be vital for a young man who had ambitions to acquire leadership and to inspire others. And Crimmel knew just the poet to teach Fionn. The man was a bit of an eccentric, yes, but he was also a genius and lived far away from society, so conveniently Fionn could complete his training out of the reach of his many enemies, who by this point were probably getting some hint that he was around, given his failure to keep a low profile and the recent killing of the Grey One. And so, after staying with Crimmel's small band for a while, Fionn set off with a mixture of regret at leaving newly discovered family behind and a renewed sense of purpose, which by this point was pretty much his default state of being. This poet, to whom Fionn was to be apprenticed, was named Finnegus, and he lived on the banks of the River Boyne. And it was quite literally on the banks of the Boyne that Fionn found him, staring with a crazy intensity into the water. His eyes barely flickered to acknowledge Fionn when the young man finally found the old recluse. Fionn introduced himself as Demne, knowing the men of Morna would be likely looking for him as Fionn, and perhaps finally learning to go a little bit incognito. Finnegus acknowledged Fionn and rambled away at him in a slightly mad kind of way, and without taking his eyes off the flowing waters of the river. And in this manner, Finnegus taught Fionn all he knew of poetry, which was indeed a great deal. While the younger man helped Finnegus with the cooking, hunting, chores around the hut, which Finnegus struggled with because of his all-consuming hobby. And it must have been very useful for the old man, as now he could spend even more of his time watching the river, breaking only for sleeping and the most urgent of other tasks. He talked constantly at Fionn, sometimes with crazy speed, but often in the most beautiful, haunting verses, which had the power to arouse deep feelings within Fionn, sometimes leaving him weeping, sometimes feeling his heart would burst out with the most intense joy at the world, sometimes inspired to do the greatest deeds he could imagine. And slowly, Fionn learned. After many months, Fionn felt he had got to know his companion well enough to ask the obvious question. So, this staring at the water all the time, what's that about? Ah, I thought you'd never ask. You see, I've been waiting for, how long, seven years now, for it is prophesied that I shall be the one who catches the salmon of knowledge. You know, the one who ate the hazelnuts of Necton, like in the intro section of the first episode of this series. Fionn was smart enough not to say, well, if it's a prophecy, won't it happen whatever you do? Wouldn't you be better off just getting on with your life and then you'll stumble across it one day? Like, you'd be kind of the opposite of all those kings in Greek mythology who spend their entire lives trying to avoid the prophecies that the oracles have given them. It's just going to happen. You can't stop it, change it. That's prophecy for you. Instead, he said quite politely, And what will you do when you've caught it? Um, I, I don't really know right now. But you see, after I've caught it, I will know everything there is to know. And so I shall know exactly what to do then, but now I don't. But I'm not too worried about it, because when I eat the salmon, I'm going to know everything. You see? That did make quite a lot of sense. Fian kind of wished he knew what happened next for himself, but he didn't. And so he waited with Finnegus, learning poetry, beginning to write his own, and doing the old man's chores. Life got into a satisfying routine. 
until one day there was action. A splash, a jubilant whoop of triumph, given with an intensity that can only be given by a hermit who has been waiting seven years for this exact event to happen. The salmon! The salmon! And there in Finnegus's hands was a huge salmon, all intensely rich in colour and looking somewhat wise and serene. It had known this was going to happen after all, and so had had time to make its peace with the world. It had been so long since Finnegus had made his own food, and he was trembling with such elation, that it fell to Fian to get the fire going, on which to cook this catch of a lifetime. He was fairly excited himself, seeing his tutor achieve his goal, and in having been given such an important task. And so he roasted the fish over the fire. And he waited, grasping it, turning it when it needed it, and, ooh, he burned his thumb while turning, and soon a blister rose on it. It seemed Fionn's powers of excellence at everything didn't quite extend to cooking. Automatically he put the burnt tip into his mouth and sucked on it to cool it down. And strange thoughts flashed across his mind unbidden. Thoughts of Tara where Con, the High King, sat at the head of a great feast. For a moment the image seemed so real, but then it dissipated as suddenly as it came and Fionn was back cooking the salmon. When it was ready he took the delicious smelling meal to Finnegus who he found looking rather less exuberant than he had before. In fact, he was looking at Fionn with a decided air of suspicion. Demne, you didn't by chance eat any of it, did you? No, of course not. Though, now you mention it, I did burn my thumb on the fish, and I tasted just a tiny bit of it on the burnt skin. The great poet looked aghast. Demne... That's your name, yes? Well, yes, it, it's the name that my mother gave me, but many do call me Fian. 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 Finnegus smacked his hand against his forehead. Oh, of course, I've got the prophecy wrong all this time. It's me who's to catch the fish, but it's you who is to eat it. No, no, you've been waiting all this time. You've got to eat it. It's yours. No. The prophecy is very clear, now I understand it. I catch it, and you eat it all. Well, can't we at least share it? suggested Fian, who had grown very fond of Finnegus, and didn't want to take the prize the man had worked so very hard to get away from him. Oh no, said Finnegus, who was now raising his hands and actively backing away. I know how this works. We share it, and just as I go to take the bite, an albatross or something falls out of the sky onto my head and knocks me stone dead. Bam! Prophecy fulfilled! Dangerous to fight against it. Best off, I wait over here, and you get it down you. Oh, so now you choose to understand the power of prophecy, but didn't think of that when you waited by the river for seven years, Fionn did not, helpfully add. Instead, he accepted his destiny, and he ate the salmon of knowledge. It was absolutely delicious. And as he ate, he learned about the future, the past, and the now, a huge wave of knowing washed over him until he was almost drowned under it. There was so much to know in the world, he had no idea, and he learnt it all. But of course it was far, far too much for his mind to comprehend. When his meal had settled and that first initial explosion of, wow, so many facts, wore off, it wasn't as if he had suddenly become omniscient. Rather, he now found that if he concentrated hard, and sucked on that thumb he had burnt, 
he could divine some piece of knowledge. It was a bit like having an inbuilt, thumb-powered Google that could search all of time and space. And now, with the help of his deceased fishy friend, Fionn had a plan. He said goodbye to Finnegus. Goodness knows how the old man reacted to this turn of events, but perhaps he simply felt glad to have played his role in destiny. Before Fian went, he left his tutor with a poem, a poem of such excellence that it brought tears to the eye. Fian had learned from the best, and now the pupil, though young, had equalled the master. Finnegas wished him well, and they parted on good terms. And Fionn set off with determination and direction the like of which he had never known before. It was time to finally get back on the main quest, the quest for which he had been raised from birth. To take on his enemies, Targ, the grandfather who had tried to kill him, Clan Morna, the killers of his father, and take his birthright as leader of the Fiana. And this time, there was no more meandering. Fionn headed straight for Tara from where Con the High King ruled. It was time for the final showdown. Fionn was not alone in heading for Tara. In fact, a great mass of people were travelling that way. They would usually be at this time of year, for it was the festival of Sarwin. But Con was throwing an even bigger celebration this year, the Great Feast of Tara, which would last for weeks. And all the great and the good of Ireland and their families, retinues and various hangers-on were travelling to Tara to get their place at the table. Fionn arrived late into the evening, just before the annual festival of Sarwin itself, and he didn't mess around. Rather, he strode with confidence into the Great Hall, Within were many tables of nobles dining, and at the head of the room, Fionn recognised two men he felt he had known his entire life through the stories his foster mothers told of them. Con of the Hundred Battles, the High King of Ireland, seated upon his throne, and at his side, the one-eyed head of the Fianna, Gol McMorna. They noticed him as well. Who is this boy? asked Con to the assembled room. Those within turned their collective heads to Fionn, but they did not know him. Gold squinted his one eye. There was something familiar. I am Fionn, son of Cool, he who previously commanded the Fiana. An indrawing of breath swept the room. And I come to you in the spirit of friendship and to seek your service. Fionn could almost see the words clever boy on Gol McMorna's lips before his expression turned to an awful scowl. You see, it wasn't as though Fionn had always just been able to walk into the hall of the High King and proclaim who he was. There was a very good reason he'd been hiding for all these years, because of Clan McMorna being very much determined to kill him. But... For the weeks of the Feast of Tara, there was the strictest of laws observed by the most humble 
up to the king himself. No man could draw weapon against another, nor engage in any type of feuding. Gull did some more intense scowling. Well, there was nothing he could do to the boy now, but the feast would last only a few days more, and he'd make damn sure Fian didn't leave without a group of clan mourners, finest trackers and assassins, hot on his trail. Con's reaction was very different, though. Con had only ever been involved in the fight against Cool because, in taking Fionn's mother, after Con specifically forbade him, Cool had made it politically impossible for Con to do anything but crack down hard. But this boy wasn't cool, and Con saw an opportunity to put right some of his discomfort at the unfortunate affair by treating the son well, especially as this son seemed only willing to please and serve him. So Con welcomed him warmly, as Gol was afraid he would. You are the son of a good man, and very welcome as a friend here. Come, sit beside me. And Fionn did so as the feast resumed around them. And a great time was had by all. Despite living most of his life with very few of us in a forest, Fionn turned out to be quite the socialite, perhaps sucking on his fishy thumb from time to time to give him an idea of the right thing to say or do. There was great quaffing, there was great carousing, there was much merriment from all assembled, even if Gol was kind of faking it. The party continued until the early morning hours in this way, right up until Con rose with a demeanour suddenly serious. A hush fell upon the room as Con addressed the assembled kings, lords, warriors and poets, the creme de la creme of Irish society as they were. We have feasted well, but tomorrow you all know that Aileen will be upon us once again, and yet again he shall reduce Tara to ash. I ask you all once again, indeed, I, the High King, beg of you, is there any amongst your number who will stand against him, who will save this city? There was a silence, and a studied avoiding of Con's gaze. If any such person were to be found, I swear I would give them their birthright. Still no takers. And it wasn't because these people were cowards. No, this was a practical problem. To back up a bit and fill in the backstory, Aileen, of whom Con was speaking, was one of the old gods, the She. And he hated King Con, who I'm not referring to like that again. Like all of his kind, Aileen was now confined to the underground world within the great earthen barrows. But Samhain was a different time. Then the barriers between the worlds weakened, and for a small amount of time, Aileen could come into the world of men. And for the past 23 years, he had been using this opportunity in a particularly single-minded way, burning the city of Tara to the ground with a great blast of fire from his mouth. As you can imagine, this having happened so many times, the sky-high insurance premiums were basically bankrupting the kingdom. Now, however terrible Aileen and his breath were, this alone would not have provided a problem to the many great warriors of the land. Nope, the real clincher was the music Aileen played on his timpan, which is a kind of simple harp. For, as he approached, he would bring out his instrument and pluck a beautifully haunting tune each note infused with a potent magic, so that all who heard it would fall instantly into a deep sleep, even the wounded or women in the midst of giving birth. To try and fight Aileen in the face of this was hopeless, and it meant a grisly fate 
to burn to live with the city. Many had tried at first, of course. They were no longer around. A natural selection meant there were now few volunteers willing to take their place on this fool's errand. Whatever incentives Con promised were useless to the dead, and Tara would burn anyway. And so the silence that greeted Con's request. Until, of course, Theon stepped up. Birthright, you say? Aye, I swear it here in front of all the provincial kings of the lands, and all the druids who shall ensure it is fulfilled. Then I'll do it. I swear I will kill this Aileen and prevent the destruction of the city. In return, all I ask is my birthright. And all of them entered into the bond, though there was not one amongst them who believed that the boy, son of cool though he may be, would live to collect his reward. Gaul felt some relief. As head of the Fianna, his inability to deal with Aileen had always been a stain upon his record. At least now the creature would remove from him the other greatest problem that he had. And so the feast broke up. The attendees left to begin their preparations to leave the city before the next night and the inevitable destruction. Now you might reasonably think that Fionn, great as he was at everything he tried, had some grand plan or divine knowledge that would allow him to succeed where so many had failed. But nothing of the sort. He was just overcome with arrogance and given the plan to get into the city and meet Con during the feast had gone so well, he figured he was on a roll. But let's imagine him a little nervous before his upcoming battle. How exactly was he going to steel himself against the soporific sorcery of the she? A sliver of self-doubt crept upon Finn. It was a completely new feeling for him, and not one he enjoyed. He was beset with these new worries when a man surreptitiously sidled up to him. For extra effect, he raised his hand theatrically to cover his mouth and then made a distinct pss sound. Hey, laddie, are you looking for something to help you in your fight? When Fionn indicated in the affirmative, the man introduced himself. Fiatra Makonga, I fought with your father and was close to him. I'll help you now, for a small price. Not all of Con's men had fled into the forests. Some had reluctantly adapted to Gaul's new regime, and Fierke was one of them. As Krimmel had promised, Finn had some allies in this place. So, I've got this spear, you see. It always flies true and finds its mark, but more importantly than that, the tip is incredibly noxious. It's all wrapped up for now, but when you unbind it, the venomous stench of it will be such that for all Aline's beautiful music, you will be totally unable to sleep. And what do you want for this? Oh, nothing much. I mean, you're cool, son. I'd pretty much do it as a favour, but a man's got to eat, you know. So it'll just be the low, low price of a third of everything you ever gain, and that of your three closest advisors, I shall always be one. Best rate's going. He gave a broad, friendly grin. It may not have been the deal that Fionn had hoped for, but this was a seller's market. I accept your price. A third of everything I win from now on shall be yours. And with that deal agreed, Fiatra was true to his word and handed the spear to Fionn. And neither of them openly acknowledged that Fiatra, for some indeterminate but presumably reasonably lengthy amount of time, 
had been in possession of a weapon that, in the right hands, could have stopped the city being burnt down every year, and that he had elected not to use this, leading to many lives needlessly lost and a huge rise in insurance premiums. And now, you understand, I'll be off, said Fircher. I've not used the spear myself because I'm really more of a coward than a fighter. And so saying, Fircher joined the mass exodus of those fleeing Tara. Over the day, the city emptied. Many of those leaving who had been glad to know of the survival of Cool's son shook their heads sadly as they saw the young man they had just met prepare to meet his inevitable death. By the time night had descended, only Fian remained. Utterly alone in the silent city, he waited, spear in hand. The walls between the worlds weakened as midnight approached. And Aileen, terrible in his ferocity and wrath, seized his annual chance. The she stepped out from his world of banishment and entered ours. Harp in hand, he advanced upon Tara, fire in his belly ready to consume all before him, and he played his enchanting melody. The strains reached Fionn and he felt a tremendous weariness come over him. His eyelids became heavy as lead and his head began to droop and with the last of his energy before falling to the floor, he did as Fircher bade him. He tore the bindings from the head of the spear and thrust its tip against his forehead. And now he could just sleep. And oh boy, oh boy, his eyes snapped open. The poisonous stench of the spear in his mouth, his nose, his eyes. It was the most pungent, acrid and terrible odour he'd ever experienced. And though he could still make out the notes of the tympan, they were somewhere in the far background, away from the immediacy of the choking horror of this spearhead. Fian rubbed his eyes, and in order to catch a breath, he dared to move the spear away a little. For even he couldn't stand it any longer. And as luck would have it, by this point, Aileen had stopped his playing. And as the evil miasma slightly lessened, Fionn found himself staring up at the monstrous form of the she. The giant was preparing himself to breathe a great bolt of fire. Fionn, fully alert, leapt out, and as the flames burst forth from the mouth of his opponent, Fionn turned them down with his cloak, so that rather than spreading out across the city, they were instead forced downwards into the earth, the heat cutting a great gash between the two. Aileen was shocked. He'd not even noticed Fionn, so unprepared was he for any to resist his spell of sleep. But he saw him now, standing below, spear in hand, having harmlessly dissipated Aileen's great fire. Though single-minded in his pursuit of vengeance, Aileen was no fool. He did not declare he would crush the puny mortal or stop mocking and laughing at him, all convinced of his own superiority. Nope, he could see that his two most powerful abilities, having been so easily shrugged off, Whoever this man was standing before him, he was a very definite and real threat to Aline. And so, once he'd recovered from the initial shock of his reversal in fortunes, he turned and he ran. Ran for the safety of his great earthen barrow and his own world. Fian was not one to leave a job half done, and he sprang in pursuit. Spear in hand, he tore across the land after the retreating giant. Aline could hear the human pursuing him, 
and so he ran ever faster until the great stone entrance to the mound was just in front of him. He was going to make it. And that was Aline's last ever thought. For at that moment, Theon's spear struck him in the back, and, in a way which raises serious questions about his anatomy, drove his heart out through his mouth. The great body fell just before it reached the door. The first tendrils of daylight were streaming over the horizon by the time Fionn returned to Tara, carrying the head of Aileen. He mounted it upon a pole and raised it on the green before the city, and it was sitting under this grisly trophy that the astonished lords of Ireland found Fionn when they finally dared to return. Tara and all her treasures are saved, cried Con, and it was so. And so that day a great assembly was gathered. It had all come to this. All his training from birth, living in exile, hiding from his enemies, his time in the courts of the various petty kings, finding his uncle, learning poetry on the Boyne, all for this moment. The moment when the high king turned to Fionn in front of the assembled lords and said, This man, Fionn, son of Cool, has saved our city. And as I am true to my word, I grant to him his birthright. Firstly, his land shall be returned to him. Targ, father of Myrna, grandfather of Fionn, who took Cool's lands, shall return them to his grandson. And he shall forever abandon the white stronghold at Almud to Fionn. Furthermore, Targ shall pay to Fionn the Eric, that is the money due for the unlawful killing of his father. And though he much lamented his loss, Targ paid the money and left the fort, and from then on it was at Almu that Fionn would reside. But this was the smallest part of the birthright. Con continued, It is also decreed that from this day forth, leadership of the Fiana will pass from Gollum McMorna to Fionn McCool. Fionn's moment had come, his birthright restored, his father avenged. He was head of the Fianna. And yet, this left the small matter of Gol McMorna, who for all the years of Fionn's life had been head of the Fianna, who had tried to kill Fionn many times, and now had his position stripped away. And what happened next came as something of a shock to the standard narrative tales of vengeance on which Fionn had been raised. For Con turned to Gol, and he presented the man with a choice. Leave Ireland forever, or serve under Fionn. If Gol was overcome by his spectacularly rapid and unexpected fall from grace, he did not show it. Instead, he turned to Con and Fionn, and he answered, I have made my choice. I shall pledge my loyalty to Fionn, and I shall do so first, so that the shame in doing so attaches only to me, and not to the men who follow me. And so it was Fionn's greatest enemy who first shook Fionn's hand and bowed before him to acknowledge his leadership, and all the chiefs of the Fianna followed him. And so the boyhood of Fionn McCool came to an end. Fionn now led the Fianna for Con, and Gol McMorna was at his side, and many great adventures in this wild, untamed island waited for them all. Thank you.
so begins the legend of Fionn McCool. I say begins, as, as I hinted just there and as I said last time, the stories surrounding Fionn are varied and numerous, if not altogether a coherent whole. Now the story just told has a familiar arc. Disenfranchised boy grows up to be a man and regain his birthright to take command of other men is one of the most common archetypes there is in mythology. However, there are a number of aspects of this tale which are somewhat more unexpected, unusual and interesting to me. The fact that Fionn is raised by two women, with nothing particularly feminine mentioned about this. And how Myrna does not become some tragic figure, endlessly waiting for her son to return, but actually gets on with her life. The stories are particularly involved when it comes to political aspects. This and later Fionn stories chart the interplay between various different power sources, from the High King, the different clans, the Fianna, the Petty Kings, and their various different power plays, shifting loyalties, and moral choices. But all of this set in a world that feels distant from the medieval world in which these tales were told, rich as it is in magic and otherworldliness, and harking back to pre-Christian gods in certain aspects of the story, be it with the crane bag or the Salmon of Wisdom. I'm somewhat confused by the Salmon. The Salmon seems key to establish some of the motifs that Fionn is famous for, as a great poet and as a seer whose power was awakened by sucking on his thumb. However, the claim of ultimate knowledge never seems to find further use within the stories. Though he can prophesize, he never seems to be as wise as one might expect a boy who was eaten of the Salmon of Knowledge. But this is certainly due to the disjointed way in which the story has been formed over the ages. Now, the final act of the story, with Fionn's arrival at Tara, is somewhat unexpected to me, because the climactic scene is our hero facing down a hitherto unknown danger, and not the murderers of his father as you might expect. An unknown villain was suddenly thrust in at the last minute, as if the actor playing Gol was suddenly taken ill or something. Even more surprising is the lack of any bloody revenge on Targ or Gol, which the entire tale seems to have been building up to. The twist where Gol is Fionn's second in command, which is a position he will retain for most of the Fenian cycle, is something that I particularly like about this tale. Now at this point I have a very slight confession to make. The Boyard of Fionn tale that you've just heard is unique. It's unique in that, even more than just stylistic differences, it's not a fateful retelling of a traditional story. I didn't make things up exactly, but I did pick and choose pieces from a number of different stories floating around and put them together in my own way. But in my defence, this is exactly what every person who's told this over the last millennium has done. It can be tempting to see legends of this type as having come down from ages past in a single complete narrative, perhaps slightly modified for modern sensibilities, but basically the same. But though this may be true of some stories, where one version is written down, the tales of Fionn are different. These stories are more a great mass of composite parts drawn from various sources and welded together, hopefully in a way in which the joins don't show too obviously. The tale that this one was most closely based off was a version of the Fionn tale published in English by Lady Gregory in 1904, as part of a huge English language version of the Fenian cycle. Lady Gregory is a fascinating character in her own right, a high-profile Irish writer and dramatist with a keen interest in Irish mythology. She travelled widely, founded theatres with W.B. Yeats, and yes, I'm quoting Wikipedia here, was described as the greatest living Irishwoman by George Bernard Shaw. 
Gregory drew together lots of different tales about Fionn that were in existence, translated them, but also chopped and changed to give some coherency, and also left out large amounts she didn't like or were just contradictory. I've built on her work as this has become the kind of standard of Fionn tales which writers after her have imitated, even though it was new in that particular form. Gregory's tale can largely be found in two much older texts. The Machnamarf of Fionn, which just means the boy of Fionn, which is found in a manuscript from the 12th century and features most of the early bits of the story, including the childhood in the forest and the eating of the salmon, but does not mention Eileen at all, in fact telling a different adventure than she, but which is actually unfinished. The other key source is the Colloquy of the Ancients, a collection of Fenian tales found in a few medieval manuscripts which have what I consider to be a great framing narrative. Some surviving and very aged members of Fionn's family are in conversation with St. Patrick. They tell him tales of Fionn and the Fiana, and St. Patrick occasionally tuts a bit and gives observations about how they should have done things in a Christian way, though the warriors never seem to particularly agree. It's here the whole story of Aline and Gaul submitting to Fionn can be found, though not only here. Now, Lady Gregory combined these narratives to make the story of the Fionn we have today. Like some other writers, I've also added bits I like from a text called the Book of the Dun Cow, a very old vellum, that is animal skin, manuscript of the 12th century. Which in my opinion sounds like exactly the kind of book that stories like this should come from. This contains a bit more detail about Cool and the Battle of Nock. I've also incorporated bits from a slightly different source, the Donaire Fionn, Written much later in the 1600s, this is a collection of Fenian tales composed at different times and apparently first owned by an Irish officer in the Spanish army fighting in the Netherlands in the first half of the 17th century and was given to him to remind him of the tales of home, perhaps. I find the tales in this manuscript particularly interesting in the way they deal with the character of Gaul, making him considerably more sympathetic and even heroic than in the other tales and even explaining the history of his rivalry of Cool and his time as head of the Fianna. As well as these sources, there are a huge number of alternate literary and oral versions of these tales available. Bits and myself and Lady Gregory alike have omitted. Some of the more interesting versions have Fionn being much more lascivious, wooing a blacksmith's daughter at a young age with the great gift of a pig's head, as well as having encounters with mystically beautiful women of the Shi. In one version, it's Fionn's own grandfather who burns down Tara, and in others, it's Gaul McMorner. Going even more out there, at least one author suggests that in the earliest accounts of Fionn's boyhood, he might have been brought up under a lake, and in at least one very tragic version, Fionn accidentally kills Bodle by running too fast while he's carrying her. In others, he drowns all the boys in the swimming contest and kills all the hurlers. So there's some fairly stark differences there, from the tale that Lady Gregory chose to tell. The point is that there's not some gospel truth that lays out the boyhood of Fionn. What there are instead is a tree of stories reaching back over at least a thousand years and with the roots stretching all the way into Irish prehistory. And the version I've told today is just the tip of one leaf. And so I'll leave you with that tortured metaphor. There's more Fionn to come, but next time we'll be looking at a far less epic tale, when we'll be back in England with a Yorkshire story set not too far away from myself. The Fearsome Dragon of Wantley. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. 
There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.